One of the arguments that are used as natural ways of affirming the existence of God is the fact that everything designed has a designer. And as we look at the world around us, we behold much of the marvelous intricacies that are woven into the design of the universe. And you and I know fully well that if something is designed and it's impressive, it's intricate, there has been an individual behind it that has established the plans, the blueprints on how the structure is to be established. Now, God certainly isn't a being that, quote-unquote, flies by the seat of his pants. He's an individual that, knowing all things, has determined what will bring glory to him and is beneficial for his creatures. When we consider the heavens, the work of your hands, what is man? that you're mindful of him. Just the majestic glory of all that God has made and how it tends to make us feel so small and so insignificant. But this master architect who has created the heavens, the universe in which you and I live and have our existence is also the master architect that has so worked in the course of history to provide the way in which individuals can appropriately worship him. When we think about God's work in the Old Testament and we look at God calling the nation of Israel out of Egypt, one of the first things that he prescribed for them was the appropriate building the appropriate entity in which they could worship him, didn't he? He gave Moses the pattern while he was on the mount of the tabernacle to accomplish effective worship, worship that's in keeping with God's grandeur and his glory and worship that is acceptable to him. When the nation of Israel was settled in the land, It was the desire on the heart of a man who was known as a man after the heart of God to build a temple by which the people of God could gather together to worship the Lord. And as David contemplated building that temple, God told him, you are not going to be the one that will build the temple for my great name but it will be a descendant after you who will do so. In the physical sense, it was David's son, Solomon. In the spiritual sense of building the spiritual tabernacle, the spiritual temple for the Lord, it would be David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. How did David know what the temple was to be like? Well, that same master architect who designed the heavens, who gave the plans to Moses on how to build the tabernacle, 
also gave to David the plans on how the temple was to be designed and to function. And David told Solomon, here's God's blueprints for the temple that will be built for his name. Follow it precisely. We have been studying about the New Testament church. And what we need to recognize is that when it comes to the church, again, God is not flying by the seat of his pants. God has a design in mind for this spiritual entity known as the church. And Jesus Christ himself had communicated to the apostles prior to his death and resurrection that he would build his church. And as we look at this entity called the church, that which God is building, that which is designed for the people of God to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, for these are the ones that God seeks to be his worshipers. We need to recognize that God has a plan God has a blueprint for the church as well. Now, as we have been studying, we recognize that this entity known as the church, called by Peter a holy temple unto the Lord in which we are individual stones in that building, as we look at this entity known as the church to which Christ has given gifted individuals to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, that we all mature and grow up into that perfect, full, mature man into the image of Christ so that the body builds itself up in love, we have to realize that God has a design. God has a blueprint for the church itself. And if we want to understand something of that design and of that blueprint, it's good for us to look at the church in its inception and to see how God established it and what God indicated was of greatest relevance and importance for the well-being of the church. And we find that in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2. And while we'll look at Verses around this verse, the key verse is verse 42, where the author of Acts, that is Luke, says, and they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, the book of Acts has been called the Acts of the Apostles. It's the title that's been given to it. And we can understand why, because it's focusing on the activities of the apostles in the days of the early church. But if we look at it carefully, we find that it's not so much the works of the apostles that are being underscored and highlighted in this book, but the work of Jesus Christ. And if you go back to Acts chapter 1, where Luke makes it clear that he is writing again this letter to Theophilus, on the first count I composed, what would that be? The gospel of Luke. So here's the addendum. Here's the continuation 
of what I first conveyed to you in what we know of as the Gospel of Luke. And what is it that he talked about in his first account, in his first work? All that Jesus began to do and teach, he leaves it open because Christ is not done going about doing good. And Christ is not done teaching God's truth to individuals. But how is he now doing it? Through the members of the body of Christ, through the church. Christ had stated, recorded for us in the gospel account, my primary work is going to be to build my called out assembly, my church. And when we come to the book of Acts, we see how Christ is at work building his church, bringing to pass what he had promised. It is what Jesus is continuing to do, what Jesus is continuing to teach through his followers, and in particular, the appointed spokesman for him. Those who were called out and sent with authority that you and I refer to as apostles. Those who were selected by God himself first to be with Christ during his earthly life, then told in the upper room, I have a lot more to teach you, but you're not able to bear it now. But when the spirit of truth comes, he will lead you into all that truth and he will disclose to you things that are to come. And so if you think about the historical reference of when Christ made that statement to the 11 who were still in the upper room with him, the things that were yet to come that they weren't able to comprehend fully at that point, that the Holy Spirit would teach them and that they would then be able to communicate it to others, that they would understand the things to come, you know what it has to do with? The purpose and meaning of his death and resurrection. It has to do with the transition from that generation of Jews to the establishment of the church. It has to do with laying the foundation of new covenant truth for the benefit of God's people. And the New Testament is the result of that work of the Spirit, not only showing them what is to come, but how did these apostles write those works on Jesus' life? He'll bring to your remembrance all that I said and did because he's not going to glorify himself, but he'll glorify me. So here we are in the book of Acts. And if we look at Christ working through the apostles as he is building his church, really the book of Acts focuses not so much on all the apostles, but primarily on two key apostles. And those two key apostles would be first, the selected apostle to the Jews. Who was that? Peter. And then it will focus on the selected key apostle to the Gentiles. Who is that? Paul. And there's the book of Acts. It is God working through Peter. It is God calling and working through Paul. And the transition from God focusing on the nation of Israel 
to God focusing on all the nations of the earth. It is a book of transition, moving us from God's primary focus and fulfilling the promises to the nation of Israel to Christ building his church as the entity that is the primary focus of God's work today without ever saying he will not yet fulfill all of the promises that he has made to the nation of Israel. So here we are on the day of Pentecost. Who's the primary speaker? Peter. And as Peter preaches this message of the fact that the new covenant was poured out upon them, he says in verse 36, therefore let All the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, who is that? This descendant of David, this Jesus of Nazareth, this God-man, Jesus Christ. He has made him both to be Lord, that is the sovereign one. His name is the name that is above every name so that every knee is going to bow. And it doesn't matter whether it's things in heaven, things on the earth, or things under the earth. It doesn't matter whether it's those with a right relationship with God or those who are in antagonism and enemies of God. Every knee is going to bow and every one of those tongues will confess the same thing, that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the sovereign king of glory who rules over all. And they will do so to the glory of God the Father. He is both Lord and Christ. In other words, he is the promised Messiah. He is the one who fulfills all the pictures that you have in David as a Messiah, the ruling king. Of, for example, of Elijah as the one declaring God's truth to the generation of Israel, the prophet, like Moses, like Elijah. He is the appointed spokesman for God. And he is also the high priest, the anointed one, who brings those who trust him into the presence of God and with full acceptance. And so Peter says, this one that you crucified, and he says that it wasn't done by accident. Notice if you go back to verse 23, this man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But what's, what's happened? But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death. So let all the house of Israel know for certain. The reality is the tomb of Christ is empty. It's God's confirmation that there's only one name given among men whereby we must be saved, and that is through Jesus Christ himself. He has made him to be both Lord and Christ. And so he said in verse 38, therefore repent and let each of you be baptized in the name, identify with Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you too will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and your children, that is To whom was that promise initially made? The nation of Israel, the Jews. But thankfully, Peter didn't leave it there. 
guided by the Spirit of God, he says, and as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified, be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So individuals who were in Jerusalem, why? Day of Pentecost, it's one of the three times a year when all the males were required to go to Jerusalem to worship. And so earlier in this book, we learned that there were people who had come from Rome and throughout uh, southern Europe into Africa, parts of Asia Minor. They were Jews who were all there to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Tabernacles. And out of that group, 3,000 were saved that day. They received his word. They responded by a public acknowledgement. The one that the nation rejected, the one that we esteem to have received his power from Satan rather than from the Holy Spirit, the one that has been despised by the nation is the one that we are now trusting. We are embracing him as the promised Lord, Savior, Messiah of the nation of Israel. And they were added to the church and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to prayer, uh, and to prayer. When we look at this situation, we find that these new converts who now were putting their faith in the one that the nation had rejected were characterized by something in their life experience. Instead of being devoted to the traditions of Uh, the Mosaic law, instead of being identified with the nation of Israel, which was now under the sentence of divine judgment, notice it says they continually devoted themselves to four important things, the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. In other words, these individuals who were well-founded In the Old Testament, how much did they really comprehend and understand? We don't know. But before their bar mitzvah, they had at least memorized the book of Deuteronomy and often all of the books of the Pentateuch. And on other occasions, they had also memorized portions of the Old Testament. They were seeped in the Old Testament scriptures. But there was something missing. That is the key to give explanation to what all the Old Testament taught. And that key was being explained to them by the teachings of the apostles. They continually devoted themselves. In other words, they were identified with the church, the entity, the called-out assembly that Christ was building. 
I find it interesting the Greek word that is translated in my version as continually devoted themselves is a word which means regardless of what the opposition was, regardless of the external pressures that were placed, regardless of the opposition that they faced, they persevered. There was a persistence on their part. See, the writer of Hebrews makes it very clear that some individuals later on, they thought, well, you know, we understand what the truth says and we need to avoid some of the persecution that we're experiencing. We can identify with Judaism and begin to practice it even though we know the reality is found in Christ. The writer of Hebrews makes it very clear that that is not even a possibility. If you're identified with Jesus Christ, it means a wholehearted commitment to him. And here are these individuals, some of which would have been severed from family relationships. Becomes very obvious as we go through the book of Acts that they were ostracized by the Jewish community. We're identifying with the one that the nation had rejected. They persevered. There was a persistence in their devotion. They made a public acknowledgement. They held fast to that reality of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And as we look at that action on their part, it's because they understood something that I'm not sure we fully grasp today Because for us, it is far often too easy to be identified with Jesus Christ. And that would be the fact that the church is a unique entity. There is nothing that can take the place of the church. We're saturated with many parachurch organizations. And many of them serve a great purpose. But if I begin to think my association with a parachurch organization is sufficient to take the place of my participation in the church that Jesus Christ is building, I am greatly mistaken. In God's design and in God's blueprint for this entity called the church, he has designed it the way he has for two important reasons. The first important reason is that God himself will receive the glory. In the church, we are all here as sinners saved by grace. In the church, we are all trophies of the work of God. We who were dead in our sin, who are now alive in Jesus Christ. We who were separated from God, who now have the privilege of relationship with him. And the second important part of this is God knows better than we know for ourselves What is for our well-being and good? And the church is designed to transcend 
racial differences. The church is designed to trans, uh, to be above social economic cliques. The church is designed to acknowledge equality between the sexes, between different races and ethnic groups, because we are all one in Christ. So often our involvement in a parachurch organization means that we're associated with people who are either on the same social economic level or going through the same circumstance and we identify with them. It is only the beauty of the church that transcends generations, that transcends all the things that typically divide us. And what I need and what you need are one another in the body of Christ. That's what we learned in Ephesians chapter 4. Because God has so designed the church where there are these individuals coming together who are being equipped for the work of ministry, who are being changed from being children and immature into the fullness of Christ. And as it is taking place Every joint, every member is providing something advantageous to all the other members. I benefit from the young people, from the children who remind me again of the simplicity of depending upon God and not letting circumstances blow me away. Because when I see those little children feeling safe and secure when they're with mom and dad... Ah, Jesus said, unless you be like little children, you can't even enter the kingdom of heaven. I learn from children. I learn from the women. I learn from the men. I learn from those who are newborn Christians with an excited enthusiasm of what it means to have your sins forgiven. I learn from mature saints who have walked with the Lord, who have weathered the storms of life, and who become an encouragement to know that the joy of the Lord truly is one strength, and God will never fail nor forsake his people. And what I see in this blueprint that God gives here, the early church recognized that. We have been brought out of our previous situation and circumstance and identified with a unique entity on the earth, the church of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we are persevering, we're persisting in, we're devoted to, we are clinging to that relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ as we go through the things of this world. In America, people attend church. There is no such biblical concept. Biblically, you are the church. It's not something you attend. It's what we are. We get together corporately. We gather together for what person? Purpose to exalt and worship our God and to encourage one another in the Lord. It's part of our experience to help mature and strengthen one another as we all go through the trials and the difficulties of life. The church is designed to be an entity which takes priority 
over other things in our life and our experience because God has designed it for his glory and for the well-being and the good of his people. The early church understood that. This first reference in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, sets the tenor of what is to be true of the church from this point on. And as many individuals have recognized, when we look at the writings of Luke, Luke tends to make summary statements throughout this book that kind of pull together all the things that he's been saying, and this is the first such summary statement made by Luke. And what does he say? And they devoted themselves. No one can coerce them to do this. It wasn't something, well, I'm going because my parents said I need to. It wasn't something I'm doing because it's part of a ritual that I do on Sunday. This was an eager anticipation. And how often did they gather together as a separate community within the nation of Israel? Daily, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. There's a couple of things that I want to mention today, and the good Lord willing, next time we'll look at more detail of some of these things, but notice the concentration. There's four things that encompassed the experience of the early church that were a priority for them, that were essential for their growth, for their well-being, for their steadfastness in faith. First, the apostles' teaching. Second, Koinonia, and interestingly enough, this is the only time Luke uses this word in all of his writings. This sharing of commonness, that's the meaning of the word koinonia. It's having a partnership with one another. They also devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Another term that is very unique to Luke You won't find it in other writings of the New Testament. Now, it doesn't mean the concept isn't there. It's just one of the idiosyncrasies of this human author that you and I remember as the beloved physician Luke, to the breaking of bread. And what we find is it has to do with that common meal that they would share together. And that common meal would be um, completed by remembering the Lord Jesus and what you and I think of as the Lord's Supper or the Lord's table and to prayer. And as we look at these realities, I think that the first thing we need to understand is Luke didn't determine this on his own. He was being guided by the Spirit of God. And in doing so, from the guidance by the Spirit of God, he listed the things that are most essential for the well-being of God's people, not in the days of the, only in the days of the early church, but throughout the history of the church. The second thing that I notice is he's joined things together. Notice the connection. They continued in the apostles' teaching and fellowship. Then he says, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And so you really have two couplets that make up this four. And the first would have to do uh, with the things that are looking at our need. And the second would have to do with our expression of worship to God. 
The other thing that I think is of importance as we look at how these are designed is I think there is a recognition that it wasn't an accident in the order in which they were placed. And what is first and foremost that is essential for the well-being of God's people? The apostles' teaching. You can't minimize the importance of the word of God for the well-being of God's people. And from that flow the others. And what do we find is the result and the provision that God makes as the church follows his blueprint. Notice it says in verse 46, and day by day, continuing with one mind. How many people? Over 3,000. They're getting along with one another. Isn't that amazing? They weren't squabbling over non-essential things. That's why in the Psalms it says, how blessed it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It's like the dew that comes off of Mount Hermon that brings the rain and the water on the arid ground. It's like the oil on Aaron's beard flowing down his garment. Do you get the point? Unity among God's people is a divine blessing and gift. Just like God refreshing the earth with rain, like God establishing the priesthood of Aaron, that the nation of Israel had someone to represent them before the Lord. And they were of one mind. They were of one mind in the temple. They were breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together. And what characterized them? With gladness. And this was not a trumped-up form of existence. There was a genuineness, a sincerity within them. There was a sincerity of heart. And what they were doing is praising God. And in that, having favor with all the people, they weren't being ridiculed because of what they were like. They were being ridiculed because of the Savior they identified with. And the outcome of the Lord's work was and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. You know, attitudes are contagious, aren't they? You know, if you're a Debbie Downer, after a while you don't want to be around that Debbie. She sucks all the life out of you. But on the other hand, there are some people who are extremely infectious in the right way. A number of years ago when I had the privilege of working with the San Antonio Spurs, we had an individual like that. I can mention him because he had a period of time up here as well. That was Avery Johnson. And he coached the Mavericks and now he's with Alabama. But whenever Avery walked in a room, the way he spoke and also that big toothy grin, I mean, it was infectious. 
He was a man with joy. He was an individual that made a very positive impact upon those around him. So we're concerned about neighbors. We're concerned about our community. We're concerned about loved ones that need to know the Lord. You want to know what's important for us? God's work needs to be our priority, devoted to the church, because I am a part of the church. And I need to have a joyful, infectious attitude that people begin to crave and envy what I have. How different than when I say you need to trust Christ and they see me all the time. Woe is me. Life is such a burden. I don't know how I'm going to get through it. They had gladness, sincerity of heart. They were praising God. And the Lord was adding to the church those who were being saved. May God make us effective instruments in his body, the church. And may God be pleased to give us an understanding of his blueprint, the church that he is building, and the privilege of being part of that very unique and special work, all to his glory. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the blessing that it is to have your word, to find that it truly is a light to our path and a lamp to our feet. I thank you especially for our wonderful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the privilege the unbelievable privilege of being one of your people. The joy of knowing we're accepted by you in the beloved. Our sins and our lawless deeds you remember against us no more. And that there is now no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ. Thank you for so great a salvation and such an all-sufficient Savior in whose name we pray, amen.